grab a seat this morning. Really good to be standing up the back and then on the side and hear people singing. That's great. We are at that point in our sermon series in John's Gospel where it all comes to that pointy part. We're, we're talking about Jesus dying today. Um, and once again, I'm going to ask that you would have something in front of you if you can, whether it's your phone, whether it's an actual Bible. I saw Matt with an actual Bible. That's awesome. Um, have, have something open in front of you if you can with the scripture. We're in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28 today. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, I remember standing here saying that we have to be really aware that what John chose to write in his gospel account, he had decades and decades and decades to think about it. So he wrote the things down that he knew were important, and he wrote them in such a way that it would help us remember the things he's already said, but, but help pull those threads together that, that are making up the whole tapestry of this God story. So let's keep that in mind today. I'm going to start reading from verse 28 of John chapter 19. I'm reading from the NLT translation. It says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Just going to pause there. There's a couple of phrases out of that that I just want to bring our attention to. First one, I am thirsty. In the physical, makes absolute sense that what Jesus had just been through with his beating and his scourging and the whipping and the carrying the cross and the humiliation, he would have had a lot of fluid loss from his body. It makes sense that in the natural he was thirsty. Makes sense. And what is offered to him is some sour wine. Uh, most scholars would say it's the type of wine that the Roman centurions would probably drink while they were on the job. Uh, pretty low in alcohol, not the best stuff at all, but, but easily accessible. And it was available and it was offered to him. So straight away, my mind is taken back, not to the sour wine, but to the really good wine. That really good wine in John chapter 2, when Jesus is at that wedding feast, when he first performs that first sign, that first miracle. And it was commented to him, to, to the host of that wedding, that can't believe you have brought the best wine out at the end. Most people bring the trashy stuff out at the end. But Jesus provided the best wine. And what is offered to him here in this moment of thirst is the cheap stuff. And so straight away, my mind went there. We're reminded of the wine. But we're also reminded of... Jesus talking about people would not thirst if they were with him. And here he is on the cross, thirsty. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I go straight back to chapter 4 when John, is, uh, John, John writes about Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he says to her that you know, he can provide living water. And she goes, oh, sir, give me this water. And he indicates that the living water flows out from himself. Just after he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, he says to them, to the people, if you believe in me, you will never go hungry, you'll never go thirsty. And then he's teaching in chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles where they're remembering the 40 years of journeying through the wilderness as the nation of Israel and Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. And so we see Jesus right through John's gospel saying that he is the solution to your thirst. Spiritually speaking, and here he is on the cross saying he is thirsty. And he's experiencing this human condition. This is what John's been pointing us to, that God himself, God in the flesh, has come into our world and he's with us. John says that in chapter 1. And we see that Jesus is able to relate to each of us in our humanity, in our greatest need. I'm thirsty. I love how just that phrase helps, helps draw the threads that John's already been putting down for us. Then we see that a sponge was soaked and put on a stalk of a hyssop branch. Hyssop, it's a, it's a type of herb. And I don't think this works for us, but for a Jewish audience, this would work. Because hyssop is referenced right back in the Passover story. And I don't think John mistakenly just put that it was a hyssop branch. I think this is intentional. And so when writing about the crucifixion of Jesus, the original audience, at least with a Jewish understanding, but hopefully us too, go right back to that Exodus story where the blood of the lamb that saved the people from the angel of death was painted on the door frames with hyssop. It was used in the first Passover to provide the saving grace for the Israelites from the death of their firstborn. And here we see the ultimate sacrifice, God's firstborn, God's son, in a position again where the hyssop plant is referenced. I just find that interesting. In Exodus chapter 12, let me just read that passage to you. It says, Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and he said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of that blood on the top and the sides of your door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the door frame and pass over. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house or to strike you down. And here we see the Passover lamb on the cross. Three o'clock is this moment when Jesus gives up his spirit and dies. Three o'clock is the time when the Passover lambs are slaughtered for the Passover feast, which is the next day. And then he declares, it is finished. 
With these three words, there is so much meaning. For what was finished here at this point was not just Christ's earthly life as, as he and his disciples knew it. It, was, it wasn't just his suffering and his dying that was finishing at that point. It wasn't just the payment for sin and redemption of the world, but the very reason he came into the world was finished. His mission was finished. His final act of obedience to the Father was finished. It was complete. The scripture had been fulfilled. It is finished, the words of victory. The Greek word, day. can have several meanings. So this Greek word that we put into English, it is finished, is one word in Greek. And it could mean, very easily, it could mean, I have completed the work assigned to me, just like a boss might give a worker, I've completed it, it's finished. It could mean it's a pleasing and perfect sacrifice, just like a priest might um, might do when inspecting an animal that's going to be sacrificed. Yep. This is good. This is finished. It might mean that the picture is completed. Maybe an artist or a writer has produced some work of art and they could say it is finished. And the merchants of the day, when a debt was paid in full, they would use this Greek word, which means it is finished. So we have evidence in John's Gospel, and this is where those threads are really important. We have evidence in John's Gospel that it is finished applies to all those things. And I think with confidence we could say it applies to the work of redemption and recreation that Jesus has been involved in. It could apply to the Mosaic Covenant with the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices that the Jewish nation had been part of for centuries that is finished the curse of sin that now is finished because it was all placed on Christ past future and present the old fallen creation is now finished it was all placed in Christ because God's purposes are now about us being a new creation in Christ Satan's dominion and hold over the world and over mankind is finished because Jesus has conquered sin and death. It is finished is a profound statement. And then we read at the last part of what we've just looked at this morning so far, Jesus gave up his spirit. We have a good understanding of why Jesus had to die, but I think we can misunderstand how he died. He was not killed by the Roman soldiers. He did not die on the cross from the crucifixion being actioned to him. See, crucifixion was designed to be a slow and public and painful and humiliating death. The crucifixion did not kill Jesus. Jesus was in complete control and he willingly entered into death. He gave up his spirit. 
He had control over what was happening to him. He declared in John chapter 10 that he has the power to lay down his life and he has the power to take it up again. He has the power to do that. He allowed himself to be put in a position for that to happen publicly, but he had control. Death did not come to Jesus. Jesus chose to enter into death. He took it into himself. And as the story unfolds, we see that he overcomes it. He defeats it when he rises from the dead on the Sunday morning. As we continue in our passage today in verse 31, this will, this will flesh this out a little bit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten the deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. They were surprised that Jesus was already dead. Jesus was already dead because he chose to give up his spirit and enter into death. So what happens in this point, as you're hanging on a cross... What you eventually die from is suffocation because you cannot breathe. And so generally speaking, as you're hanging on the cross and your body is slumped down because your arms are, are nailed and suspended, and as you hang down, it's hard to breathe, so you push up with your legs to get a breath, but then that's excruciating because you've got these nails or whatever you've got through, through your feet, so you slump back down, but then you can't breathe, so you push up again to get a breath. And so to stop that process, they just come and smash the legs, break the legs. So you can no longer push up. And when you can no longer push up, your body is just sagging there and you cannot breathe and you suffocate publicly. And so they knew this. The Romans were really good at crucifixions. And so because it was a curse in the Jewish context to have a body hanging on a tree overnight, the Jewish people wanted the bodies to be taken down so they could do all the ceremonial washing and cleansing that they needed to do if, if they were involved in any of that. And just not having them there was what they wanted. But they couldn't take them down unless the people who had been crucified were actually dead. So the two guys who were crucified either side of Jesus had their legs broken so they would die quickly and they get to Jesus and he's already dead. Reading into the story, it's like that shouldn't be the case. He shouldn't be dead yet. He's only been up there for a few hours. So in verse 34, when we continue on, one of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happen in fulfilment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one that they pierced. So this is the last of the scripture being fulfilled about the Messiah. 
And actually, right back in Exodus and in Numbers, when they talk about preparing the Passover lamb, it's made really clear that the Passover lamb, not a bone, is to be broken on the Passover lamb. And then in Psalm 34, there's reference about his bones will not be broken. But then there's a reference about they will look on the one that has been pierced. These soldiers, these Roman soldiers, were not asked to pierce these guys hanging on a cross with a spear. They were surprised when they got to Jesus that he seemed to be already dead. So they did not break his legs like they did with the others, helped fulfill scripture. Now these Roman centurions are not going, hey, we know all about these prophecies in the Jewish scriptures and we're going to make sure we get all this right so it's fulfilling the scripture. That wasn't part of their thinking just the circumstance of how it happens. So they get to Jesus, they find he's already dead, but just to make sure, I'll just grab my spear and I'll just spear it up through his ribs. And what they notice, what John records, is that this blood and water flowed out. Now that reference about they will look on the one that he pierced is from the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah 12, it mentions they will look on the one that they've pierced. But then in Zechariah chapter 13, when the prophet is talking about these days, it says, on that day a fountain will be opened up. A fountain for the house of David and all of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. And again, we get this picture that John's been threading right through his gospel of the power of the blood and the power of the water. The blood for the forgiveness of sins and the water for the cleansing. Now we can go into a medical understanding of what this might have been and what John might have saw come out of this wound, but this is not the place. Look it up for yourself. It's pretty interesting. But there's this image of the blood and the water. The sacrificed Son of God, the Lamb of God, whose blood will take away the sins of the world and the water that will cleanse the world of their sin. See, John's continual referencing of Scripture is deliberately designed to help us believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's in that passage again. He, he, he just wrote, he just said, where is it? Somewhere here? Um, he... This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. This is John's purpose in writing down what he wrote, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We need to keep paying attention to the clear evidence that John is providing in his gospel account. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the I Am. Remember those seven I am statements that John unpacked for us. Jesus is the new Adam framed in a new Genesis story through John's gospel. Remember the beginning of John's gospel echoes the beginning of Genesis in the way it's phrased. Jesus is the perfection of the nation of Israel, fulfilling the roles of prophet and king, connecting God to people and people to God. And, today, and in today's passage, Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the one who has completed the mission of God to destroy the power of sin and death by entering into it and overcoming it. This is the Jesus that we praise and give glory to. This is 
our God in human likeness, demonstrating his love for us in ways that only he can. I want to finish today with a prayer for us, and this prayer comes straight out of Hebrews chapter 10. You might want to turn there if you've got your device. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. I just want to pray this over us as a community as we've considered what John has shared with us this morning. Hebrews 10, chapter 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of the ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Let that be our prayer for one another for the church today. Amen. What I would encourage us to do now is just maybe take a moment. Take a moment.